I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What's up, y'all? I'm Taryn Finley, a senior culture reporter at HuffPost, and this is I Know That's Right a weekly podcast about the latest in entertainment, culture, and trending conversations. Get ready, y'all, because I'm about to take you to a place where mainstream news and the wild west of internet culture collide. From the news that makes us say, I know that's right, to the mess that you know is dead wrong, I'm breaking down the week that was, and we've got a lot to talk about. Then, as always, I'll bring in a guest for an in-depth conversation And this week, we're talking about this year's TV writer strike and the communal power of bonding over our favorite shows with screenwriter Just Latasha. This is I Know That's Right. Y'all, so much news happened this week. It was a lot. I feel like every day it's been something I... I'm like, I don't even know where to start, but y'all know I like to kick it off with good news first. So the person that has me saying, I know that's right this week is Cardi B. The rapper went off about the latest New York City budget cuts that will affect schools, libraries, sanitation and so many other departments. New York City Mayor Eric Adams announced a massive budget cut that would seriously hit schools, close public libraries on Sundays, Cut into the sanitation budget, which means more rats, y'all. Ugh. And freeze police hiring. That part doesn't sound as bad to me, to be honest. But, you know, but let, let's stay on track. The mayor said more cuts would actually need to be necessary without federal funding. And he blamed all of this not on city government, not on all the brunches and hookah lounges that he frequents but on migrants coming into the city, y'all. Wow. Okay. (laughs) In an Instagram live video, the Bronx-born rapper responded to these cuts by calling out not only the mayor, but also President Joe Biden and compared this country's preoccupation with managing wars to a broke dude trying to date two women at the same time. Listen to it. And yeah, we talking about we we could fund two wars. That's like a nigga trying to front like, yeah, I got the money to support two bitches, but you really don't. Y'all talking about y'all don't fucking, y'all don't make negotiation with the Ops. Well, y'all need to sit the fuck down. What I appreciate most here is that Cardi B is speaking directly to her fans about a serious issue that's happening on a local level that very much can and is happening in other cities across the country. And though, of course, the federal government can't govern how cities and states allocate or cut back on funds directly, 
the buck does stop at the top. Let's be very real. Cardi is not dumb. And I saw a lot of people playing her like she's dumb, which I hate it. They called her out for not understanding how the levels of government work. But Yara being so obtuse, she's tackled political issues before in a relatable way, in a way that breaks it down in layman's terms and is very knowledgeable. And she's doing it here and most likely educating her fans who may have not known about this otherwise. We're absolutely in a recession, as Cardi says in this video. And with a presidential election coming up, if y'all don't think that Cardi knew exactly what she was doing, calling out Biden here and also threatening to not endorse anybody, then you're gravely misunderstanding and underestimating her. And you probably do that to people like her. Cardi, what you said needed to be said in a way that was true to you. And I really appreciate you for that. I can't do anything but applaud you. I know that's right. Okay, now on to a story that I don't think is quite right. It's a little complicated. So follow me here, y'all. Follow me. So y'all have probably heard of Tyla. If not, you've heard her popular song, Water, which has become the most streamed song by a female African artist right now. She became the topic of discussion on Twitter over the weekend after rapper Travis Scott hopped on the remix to her viral Afrobeat hit. And who knew that a photo that the pair took at a GQ event would result in a global debate about race? I sure didn't. So someone on Twitter posted the photo and joked that they'd never seen Travis take a photo with a black woman. That's suspicious. <laughs> and I'm not even going to get into that. OK, but several Twitter users responded, noting that Tyler identifies as colored, not black. Black was actually what we began to proudly identify as as the black power movement grew at the same time. If you know South African history then you know that colored has a totally different meaning there. During apartheid, the government began to identify multiracial people as colored. So some people were saying that Tyler is using black American culture to cross over to an American audience. So being called black in this context shouldn't be offensive. While others were saying that censoring Americanism when South Africa has its own history and culture is very America, which it is. And that if people are to refer to her race as anything, then it should be colored. Mind you, Tyler hasn't said a peep about this since the debate kicked off. So here's my take. A lot of this is semantics, but still very much important to understand. You have to know that black Americans have a loaded and fairly recent history with the word colored. So to expect us to use the word colored for anyone isn't going to sit well, especially anyone who has had parents who were bused to school or grandparents who remember white only and colored only signs. It's also fair to point out that the way we see blackness in this country because of our unique experience isn't a universal viewpoint for the diaspora. And if you're mixed with black here, then odds are you identify as black. That's just kind of the unspoken kind of race rules that we have here. But that's just not how they talk about mixed race people in South Africa for their own historical reasons. Us getting to the black versus color debate points to the U.S., 
in South Africa actually having more in common politically than a lot of people probably know. Race is a social construct, of course, and it operates differently depending on where you are in the world. TikTok creator T. Blizzy broke it down perfectly, in my opinion, saying that how race is seen in one country isn't one size fits all. All of that. So someone like the creator I stitch will probably be classified as black wherever they go in the world. But someone like Tyla may be classified differently depending on where she is in the world, who is perceiving her at that time. Race is all about perception. For example, now ain't nobody trying to force Tyla or anybody who doesn't identify as black to identify as black. But I do think that as much as this conversation can be complicated and emotionally frustrating because of everything that's tied to race, it's a good educational moment for everyone. And it's also a good reminder to make sure y'all read. Books are still important. And if you can't get a book, Google is free. Period. Let's go to the dead wrong of the week. Last week was tough. This week isn't easier at all. And I'd be remiss to not give a trigger warning for domestic violence and sexual abuse on this story. So if you would like to skip ahead, we'll go ahead and leave the timestamp in the description after this segment. Last week, the New York Times published an explosive and disturbing story after singer Cassie filed a lawsuit against Sean P. Diddy Combs, accusing him of repeated physical abuse over a decade, rape and sex trafficking. A day after the suit was filed, Cassie and Diddy reached a settlement to resolve the case, but didn't disclose the details. Cassie said in a statement to the Times, quote, I have decided to resolve this matter amicably on terms that I have some level of control. And considering how we've seen high profile women literally go through hell and back resolving assault and abuse cases in the courts, I really don't blame her. I mean, the lawsuit itself had a trigger warning on the first page and it outlined some truly heinous allegations, which include Diddy beating her and forcing her to take copious amounts of drugs before making her have sex with male escorts. The complaint also noted that the media mogul would intimidate men he believed to be interested in Cassie, including rapper Kid Cudi, who alleged that his car exploded in his driveway shortly after Diddy threatened to blow it up. Now, for years, we've heard murmurs about Diddy's alleged patterns of abuse. And this situation with Cassie specifically makes me sick because I think about the career that she never had after me and you and the life that she couldn't fully live because she didn't feel safe enough to leave. And I also think about the voice that she didn't feel free enough to use to tell her story before now. Music is so far behind when it comes to the reckoning that needs to happen. A lot of folks were surprised and disappointed about the settlement coming to a close so soon, not only because it speaks volumes, but to put it quite frankly, there's a long list of people who want to see Diddy suffer. But at the end of the day, in this situation, specifically Cassie's safety and peace are of the utmost importance. And I don't blame her for not wanting to be a martyr for the music industry's Me Too movement that might not even happen here. All I know is Diddy is dead ass wrong and the chickens always come home to roost. OK, also, I couldn't leave this alone, y'all. I usually only have one person who's dead ass wrong for the week, but I have to give honorable mention 
a quick honorable mention to Partisan Fontaine for that fuckboy ass diss track that you made to Megan Thee Stallion. You really couldn't help but to be the weakest link and hate on somebody that you dated who confided in you, trusted in you. I need you to go ahead and erase that feminist tattoo from your belly, stat, and keep it pushing because you look lame as hell. Our girl has been through enough already. Like, please beat it. Those are the headlines of the week, but I want to hear what y'all have to say about these stories. Hit me up on socials at underscore tearing it up and let's continue the conversation over there. Next up, I'll be bringing in screenwriter Latasha. We'll be talking about the communal power of TV on screen and on the picket lines and what's to come after this writer strike. Stay put because we have more on I Know That's Right. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to I Know That's Right, y'all. So I have fond memories of being dropped off at my grandma's house after school and sitting with her, watching TV in her dark living room. She did not have cable, y'all. So you know what was on the screen. It was the soap operas, a.k.a. her stories, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. And we'd sit on her couch for hours watching this programming into until the news came on while I waited for my mom to pick me up and watched as my grandma shouted the wrong answers at the TV and talked about how fine Alex Trebek was. <laughs> and these are the first core memories that I have of appointment TV that established that basis of it not only being for entertainment, but a communal experience. Now, I wasn't a fan at first because they weren't my Nickelodeon cartoons, but I started to really look forward to them because of the time that I was spend, spending with my grandma. And because of that, I began to think I knew every damn thing, of course. <laughs> but also, I started to create a, a different kind of bond with her. And every holiday season, I get nostalgic thinking about the TV that I grew up on. And with Thanksgiving around the corner and Mariah Carey's Christmas not too far behind, I want to revisit the TV that made us. And so I've brought in a friend to help me. You can find her on YouTube dissecting your favorite shows from P-Valley to Insecure or kicking it with Mara Brockakil under her Writer's Colony residency. We have screenwriter and expert in all things TV and film, 
just Latasha. Hey, girl, how you doing? Hi, Taryn. How are you? Tearing it up, period. (laughs) (laughs) I am good, better now because I feel like you're such an expertise in just breaking down the TV that we know and love in such a smart and relatable way with mm, thank you and, yeah yeah and so I want to start off talking about your own TV foundation I feel like we all have kind of a history a TV history that we may not think about but we you know reminisce about those shows that that we that we watched coming up so what was your TV foundation do you have a first core memory of communal TV watching do I? You know, when you were speaking about your grandmother and her getting getting hot to trot for Alex Trebek, <laughs> I was like, the the only vision that really stands firm in my mind is TGI Fridays, TGIF nights on ABC Seven. We're like, you had the Family Matters, the Step by Step. You had like it was like a block of four shows, but I remember Family Matters being like the show of the night, and me and my mama and my little sister would just sit there watching that entire block and like the theme songs is the step-by-step opening had like the roller coaster ride so i would yeah. pretend every friday to be on that roller coaster like step by step day by day <laughs> you know like <laughs> that that is like the foundational core memory and when you know steve urkel transformed into stefan urkel girl babes. Your grandmama had nothing on me, okay? Listen. What <laughs> with me when I see Stefan hit the hit the TV? I was like, oh, something is happening. Seriously though, and I I love that like there is that kind of like block of shows or that 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 day that you looked forward to. For me, it was Thursdays, UPN Thursdays. My mom and I would sit and watch the whole rundown. We would watch. Parkers, one-on-one, girlfriends, and you know, they would rotate shows out. But Thursdays were really the days that I could always look forward to to sit and watch these shows that felt very much like out of my realm of understanding in a lot of ways. But I was still able to sit there and enjoy them with her and laugh at jokes that I didn't I didn't know why they were funny, but they were funny because she was laughing. And so yeah. my my favorite show actually from that block was um, was the Parkers. And <sighs> it was something about like just seeing these full figure bomb women be funny and just be able to be loud and, and audacious in their own rights and, and take up space in ways that I saw my own family do you know Mm -hmm. to to the point where I remember the uh, series finale um, was airing the same day I had to go to the ER because I knocked myself out playing kickball on the um, on the playground after school but my main girl yeah we won we won okay period okay so it was worth it (laughs) My main concern wasn't the concussion, but it was the fact <laughs> that, no, I'm show. I'm going to miss the Parkers tonight. <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing? I'm wondering if you, you, you name, you know, Family Matters and Step by Step, but did you have like your favorite, favorite show that you watched with family members growing up? Um, me and my mama battled because I was a Fresh Prince girl, but she was a Martin woman. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, so I I don't remember who came on what and where, but I was hyped for the Fresh Prince because, you know, it had Ashley and Hillary and it had generations of girlhood that I was really relating to, especially watching as a child, Ashley sort of become a teenager and try to find out, you know, her independence, her sexuality, you know, uh, rebelling a little bit. Um, Hillary trying to establish a professional career coming from being daddy's little girl. I think those were like really staples that were monumental for me to watch. Um, and I think Martin was more so, you know, grown relationships. I had no context between like what they was talking about, but just watching them hang out in the apartment and get into like adventures together. That was more than substantial to me. But I, I I don't think at that age I could really wrap my mind around those conversations. Same as different worlds. You know, my father loved a different world. Um, but I, I think I was a bit shy of the depth of the conversations that they were having. So Fresh Prince felt much more relatable and watching the school dances and watching Carlton, you know, be on drugs and watching Will get shot. And like, it was so real. That and um, the parenthood. So all those like family generational shows is probably what I'm most attached to. Yeah. Yeah. I also was a Fresh Prince girly. I I definitely relate to you as far as like specifically Ashley. I think that I saw myself so much in her and wanting mm-hmm. to, you know, be able to, to, you know, go on those dates and relate to my cool big cousins in that way. And, you know, just be free. I love that you have these moments that you, you know, or these specific shows and moments that you watch with, um, with your parents, because it does show that kind of intergenerational, like, even if you don't understand, you're Mm -hmm. still here along for the ride. I wonder what these moments mean for you as a screenwriter and what have they taught you in, in the long run? Um, I think Issa Rae is so imperative to this generation because she made plainness while Black okay. Yeah. I think we, with the the clean slate of TV, we lost the UPN shows, we lost the WB shows, we lost the Fox shows, we lost all the Black programming that made our childhood. And there was like such a drought. And so when Issa Rae pops up with Awkward Black Girl, and the biggest conflict is that she's awkward I think we really have to attend to how how monumental that is, because we were going against, you know, black girls are aggressive. Black girls are hypersexual. Black girls got an attitude for her to just come up and say, hey, I'm a little awkward. And I don't even know how to say hi to my coworker." That sort of plainness was groundbreaking. And as a black audience, we, you know, attach to it. And so coming from those foundational Black TV shows, coming with the, you know, the resurgence of Insecure, specifically after, you know, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement 2012, 2013, I wanted to speak to Black culture in the sort of human plainness. And that's what helped me to develop my first comedy web series, uh, Sit Black and Relax. I wrote and produced season one in 2015 and wrote and produced season two in 2018. My interracial friendships were severely challenged. My white friends suddenly realized I'm Black and that makes them uncomfortable. 
And we couldn't have these conversations. I, I couldn't say, hey, I'm afraid, I'm hurting. There's a social structure that's negatively impacting me and people that look like me. And that made them feel guilty and uncomfortable. And instead of like talking through it, we would get into these, you know, verbal debates and these, you know, altercations. And so season one of Sit Black and Relax speaks to you know, trying to mend that bridge between our white friends. Season two, I sort of went on a tangent where I was just like, well, let's not censor whiteness. Let's not censor how white people feel and how they're digesting, you know, black people realizing there's a, re a revolution afoot. Um, so what does a 20-something black girl who's new to New York how does she settle in this space? How does she settle into her womanhood? How does she explore love? How does she explore friendships? And really centering her groundedness and just exploring that space. Um, that's where I was led to for those two seasons. Yeah, I love that. And even watching your show, I see so much DNA of Awkward Black Girl in it in the way that some of the jokes land in the in the way that awkward black girl leans on some of those shows that we watched back in the day and that and that we enjoyed being able to be mundane and mm -hmm. just be regular and not have to have this great turmoil i love the fact that um that you brought up this kind of drought that happened right because in the late 2000s, when that strike happened, you know, we saw the UPNs, the, the cancellation of girlfriends, and we saw so many shows end up being canceled, not being renewed. It reminded me of the fact that like, of why I ended up turning to so much reality TV afterwards, because it was the only option. Then I also think about the fond memories I have of watching reality TV with my parents, you know, specifically with my mom. We would not miss a flavor of love. We would not miss, uh, you know, like that whole kind of surreal life. That whole lineup was something that felt very specific to that era that it can't be replicated, but it, I do wonder what we missed in those kind of like in the scripted realm of like, because mm -hmm. I was thinking like, dang, what, who did I, who did I look to and who did I see myself in during that period? I could only think of reality TV. So in college, I think the show that we most gravitated to was America's Next Top Model. We were watching these young adult women step out on their own for the first time, step into this like social experiment and try to get on with these relationships and chase their dreams. And I feel like, you know, while I was living on dorm in college, that was something very relatable. It was my first time away from home. It was my first time adulting. I didn't know any of the girls that I was dorming with. And it just, it just felt like so much pressure. And like top model, you sort of have to decide, you know, this big course of your life. What am I going to do mm. for the rest of my life? And watching girls like fight, cry, argue, literally pass out for the chance to be this model felt so uh, dramatic, juicy, relatable, because um, we were just young adults trying to get our degrees mm -hmm. and, and step into it. So I think that reality show was so important at that time. Girl, learn, learn something from this. Like literally <laughs> just etched in my <laughs> Iconic. head. Iconic. Oh, my God. Not in the blackface, but you know. 
Who's the oh judge? My- <laughs> Child, reality TV of that time is just it. Put it in a capsule because <laughs> because it will it will never be that again for for good and bad reasons. Yeah, um, we've we've made we've made some decisions way back when, and I think we should just leave them in the past. Let's not dig them up and rehash what had happened. We know it was one hundred percent. So I I think about um the shows that for me were aspirational back then that I watched growing up. And, you know, as a young Taryn looking and saying like, oh, I can't wait until I'm 32 and in my career and doing all of these things like a Joan or like, uh, you know, whomever. Now, I look back on those shows and I rewatch them and I'm like, I do not want to be like Joan and I do not want it, you know, and I, it's just with a fresh lens. And I even Mm -hmm. think about, you know, I even think about how I watched Insecure in a very specific lens while it was on like that felt, it felt really good. Um, And that's another form of just, communal tv watching where we were all live tweeting and all you know having the discussions of isa high versus like literally literally and and i miss it and if it felt really good and in the moment it felt aspirational because you know i'm situated in my 20s and these characters are older and now i'm within the same age realm of these characters and looking at these situations from a very different lens and having a little bit more grace for Issa D season one and a lot of the very real things that we deal with that we may talk about or may not have language to talk about that these shows give us language. So I'm wondering if there are any shows like that, that you have experiences seeing as aspirational initially and then kind of revisiting and seeing this is a reflection of this part of my life or maybe it's not yeah way back when you couldn't have told me i was not no carrie bradshaw i was Uh. like give me the (laughs) shoes the closet the big you know every girl has her big love every girl has her big I, you couldn't tell me I wouldn't be skipping down Manhattan in some overpriced dress. Like, I thought Carrie Bradshaw was the bee's knees. I was like, she's a writer. I'm a writer. She, she gets dressed up. I get dressed. And I just, I, I thought she was cute and romantic and quirky and emotional. But with my grown eyes. Grown. Real grown. <laughs> with my grown eyes. That lady got issues. Okay. That lady has pra. Blums like the way she approaches conflict with her friends and lovers and the dramatics. So many dramatics. <laughs> so many dramatics. Should have been left big. Should have been left big. If Carrie Bradshaw were, you know, in in existence today, she'd totally be like, you know, the influencer, the brandier girl. She'll be like that. And it's one of those friends that like you go out to lunch, but like you have to take their pictures. Or you oh, have to yeah, do the boomerang absolutely. and the clink glass. And you have and to it's like, girl. It's cute sometimes, not all the time. We don't have to do this every time. Enjoy your mimosa. Enjoy your mimosa, girl. (laughs) Please, I can't. There are a lot of, like, on the the tone of nostalgia in the shows that, 
you know, we've mentioned here and those shows that we've come up on, you know, there are a lot of shows that do have reboots. You know, the Bel Air is a reimagination, not a reboot. They said, they said a reimagination, you Mm -hmm. know, you have Fuller House, you have so many other, um, shows that are, you know, either reimaginations or reboots um, of these shows that we came up with. I'm wondering how you feel about about rebooting these shows that feel beloved and feel, you know, like our comfort shows. Do you, is is it a yes sometimes, no other times? Would you would you ever work on one? Now, would I work on one and do I like them are two different answers. Okay. okay. And that's real. If you and want, that's if real. want to employ me, okay, um, she'll show up in the room. But do I want them here? Do I like them? No. And this is one of the gripes that we as writers have with the Hollywood industry is that, you know, these gatekeepers, these decision makers, they actually operate in a ton of fear. They only want to figure out an algorithm that tells them this is the specific answer that will get you max amount of profit. So if a Barbie movie, which was barely about to come out because it's so different and against what we know to work, if a Barbie movie does exceptionally well, now Hollywood only wants to fulfill the algorithm that says these type of movies will will absolutely guarantee us profit. And that was what we were seeing with reboots. Um, If one reboot, this reimagination does well, the entire industry streamlines that one rule and that one algorithm. Now we're all about reboots. Um, And it's a shame because there are so many existing writers, aspiring writers, up and coming writers that have such incredible, great original ideas, but these executives don't want to bank on original ideas because they can't guarantee by an algorithm that it'll make them ultimate bank and profit. And so we have this delicate dance back and forth of who gets what opportunity because the executives do not want to take a chance on anything. And in the upcoming years, we're going to see a ton of Mattel movies <laughs> because Barbie did well. So let's just strap in and get ready for that. Um, I-, I wish they had more bravery is what I can say. And I-, I think that that, you know, we miss out not only on original content in that way, but we also miss out on new and emerging talent mm-hmm. and, you know, projects and in in the voices of people who could really represent and reflect new perspectives and new stories that we so desperately need. You know, I I think that there's never a lack of needing new stories and new perspectives. I want to stay in the square business of things, but Mm -hmm. also pivot a little bit because, you know, this year was a different year than what we've seen, you know, kind of in the past decade for writers and and actors alike. You know, I want to know as someone who's in this business and as a screenwriter, how did this year, how did the strikes in 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 this fight impact you? Oh man, it was a dual-edged sword. Um I was inducted into Marbach Hills, the writer's colony in February, literally transplanted from New York to LA on Valentine's Day. The residency started the day after. I made this big change. Um, I was also I also had just gotten a job with Netflix. I'm currently developing an original TV series with them. Um, and 
as soon as I sort of planted my feet, I got this residency, I got this job, the writer's strike happened. And so I'm in this new place, new city with no money. I mean, dead broke. <laughs> and babes, I tell you, I felt all 146 of them days, five months. Okay. The writer's strike lasted from May until September and we felt it. Um, the uh, WGA captains who were organizing all of the strikes and they worked so hard. They've created entertainment funds, which gave writers, you know, this financial bailout, which helped so much. They created grocery funds and then they were in there uh, trying to ratify this new contract. So they worked so hard and I'm still pre WGA, but I'll be WGA by the end of the month, whatever. I really got my butt kicked financially, but I say it's a, a dual-edged sword because showrunners, showrunners were outside, writers were outside, actors were outside. I met so many wonderful people coming into this community, you know, being on the line and fighting for something, fighting for a commonality. And everyone was accessible and kind and informative and encouraging. And it was just you know, under such a, a terrible circumstance, it really brought a sense of family and community and like-mindedness that I don't think I would have experienced had I just landed in LA and got straight to work. You know, it would have been much more isolating. So I, I do find, you know, a, a silver line in all of this. Um, I think it brought a, a really great sense of community because writers can be, it's a, it can be a lonely job, but it's, it's just you on the page. So that was, you know, a, a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And we got our deal. So per. That is so amazing. It also feels poetic, you know, like mm -hmm. we started off talking about the community that we felt with family and loved ones in front of the TV and even, you know, on on Twitter and just social media in general, talking about, you know, the insecures, the scandals, the how to get away with murders and things like that. And so you know, to see how much I think about that clip that was going around a few months ago of Jay Shetty talking about watching TV with your partner is ruining ruining your relationship. And everybody just was like, what are you talking about? Like, the, no, you know, because <laughs> it really does, you know, bring us closer and bond us in a specific way. But I, I want to hear from you, like, what, why is this important? You know, people could make the argument of like, oh, you're not cu curing cancer. Oh, you know, TV isn't productive, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, why is this important from a community standpoint? Maybe it isn't. But this is our job. Our job is to create entertainment and entertainment is lucrative because it is entertaining. We love going to TVs. We love going to movies. No, we ain't curing cancer and then sending rockets off into the sky. You're right. And we still tell some fire stories and we entertain you at night and we bring you together and we bring social conversations right in front of your TV screen and we make people feel seen and represented. And we, we bring, you know, different lifestyles to the forefront. I, you know, when, you know, Queer Eye comes on or, you know, the L word comes on, everyone isn't a queer person. But now you have, through this television show, a direct insight to a life that's different than yours. 
We teach history. We speak about the future. We bring, we, we bridge generations together. Um, it is at the end of the day, yeah, it's just entertainment, but uh, depending on how you approach it, how you love it, how you in infiltrate it into your life, that could be very individual. It doesn't have to be important to everyone, but I always want to make sure that whatever I write does speak to and, and honor Black women, Black culture, Black queerness. I think those are important and entertaining conversations to have. And I think if I can or if any writer can accomplish and do both with something that they create um, in a world that just demands productivity from you, mm -hmm. you know, it's there's something and Mara Brackett-Hill tells us in the res residency all the time that like writing is a spiritual practice. This is your human creation. You are alchemizing from an idea, something into a physical reality and telling a story that in itself is so delicate and, be and beautiful and honorable. And I think because we are operating in this, you know, hardcore capitalism where you're just supposed to make and build and machine your way to death, <laughs> I think people lack the connection that creativity can be a valid and lucrative business. It can be a job. Imagine being happy while you're working. I can. <laughs> I'm sorry if a, a lot concept. of people wow. cannot a concept. And you'd have to be willing to see it that way. Creativity is valid and you are allowed to play and make money at the same time. I have joy while making. I hope to bring anyone watching joy as well. And that's all I'm here to do. I know that's right. I got to transition us into um, a little closer if you will. And I want to talk about what I learned on the internet this week. And I want to hear what you learned from the internet this week as well. And mine is silly, but also I ain't laughing because I found out that Tony Braxton and Birdman are still together. I mean, I wasn't, I knew that. Okay. I think we knew that they were together maybe some years back but I think I don't know maybe I just didn't want to process it and I forgot it but a lot of people including myself were surprised to see like that they're still together and yay love but also huh <laughs> okay I'll let y'all have it I was just confused that, that was a surprise to me <laughs> Oh my gosh. No, um, I, you know, when they first made their announcement years ago on her show, I was like, I get it. But you know, to each his own and they still doing a selfies together and everything okay. ain't for us to get. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and that's what I chalked that up to. <laughs> yes. Um, I think what I learned on the internet this week is hey, I ate that one little thing. Sometimes she ate that one because somebody dropped the Destiny's Child version of Heated via AI and Michelle and Kelly sound good on it. Oh, wow. That could have been a moment. You know what? I saw that and I decided to ignore it because I'm still beefing with um, AI for several reasons. But specifically, they keep trying to bring Tupac um, back from the dead. And yeah. I'm like, uh, please, please, no. QTNA. Yeah. yeah. QTNA. I'm yeah. going to go back to Cuban C for myself. 
But um, yeah, AI also made Beyonce like rap some crazy, it sounded like a Migos verse, it sounded like a Quavo thing, but it made her rap. And I was like, oh no, I really like this. Wow. <laughs> so AI, you ate that one little thing, but you got to go, babe. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I ate that one little thing. Okay. I'm I might I might secretly <laughs> Google that <laughs> after that. Put a little, little SoundCloud link. Find a little SoundCloud link or whatever. Okay. Ain't nothing wrong with SoundCloud. <laughs> it still got some gems on it. It still got some gems on I'll it. I'll be Don't on SoundCloud. Sleep. Listen. They got good mashups over there. Okay. There was a mm-hmm. so um so they did uh Haley Williams, Paramore, um, and Destiny's Child, um uh so good. Uh, mashup. I was like, okay, this, this? yes, Haley Williams, find sisterhood. Come on, oh, that's right. <laughs> you, <laughs> you bring silly. your one percent on over here, girl. We like you. Okay, no, I, I love me some. I love me some <laughs> Haley. I love me some Haley. Um, before we get out of here, so that we can sit in front of our TVs and watch more of our comfort shows, and and maybe listen to some. Beyonce AI songs. Um, I do want to ask you what you're watching right now. What is getting you through this week? Um, I over the strike revisited both seasons of The Bear. Season three is confirmed. Um, it's such good TV. And shout out to the writer Alex O'Keefe, who was one of the staff writers on that show. He was an amazing leader and voice during the WGA strike. Um, he worked on the bear, so I hope he's also back in the room for season three. And I also like to, in in my half watch TV, half study writing, I keep watching Fleabag by Phoebe Waller Bridges. I think Fleabag it's one of the most so amazing love stories told. Um, and that to me is perfect storytelling. So I keep watching that. <laughs> Very chef's kiss. I love mm-hmm. it. I might have to revisit that this week. Oh my goodness. Latasha, thank you so much. You are just so amazing. I always love your insights and always love your TV suggestions. If y'all don't follow her, go ahead and plug where they can find you. Yes. All information can be found on justlatasha.com. I have a third comedy sketch series that I wrote, produced, and starting called Just Latasha's Interactions, which we are currently looking for a loving home for the series. Um, of course, uh, uh, thank you to Mar Brocky Kill for the residency. Thank you to Netflix for taking a chance on me and many other Black and POC writers. And uh, this year, I was a staff writer on the psychological evolution of fuckboys developed by Nakia Stevens of Damn Right Originals, the home that I am signed to. Um, we are releasing the series on Key TV this week. So check out the trailer this week. Uh, check out the series, which comes on every Thursday and um, leading up to the finale on December 21st. Okay. And I'm very excited about that. Shout out Kiki Palmer. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Latasha. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. That's the show, y'all. Another shout out to Latasha for joining me this week. And thank you all for listening. I always want to know what y'all want to hear on the show. So if there's a topic or story that you want me to explore, hit me up at underscore tearing it up. This show is produced by Acast and recorded in Atlanta this time, baby. It's Thanksgiving. (laughs) Until next time, y'all have a good holiday, a good break. Get some rest and take care of yourselves. Bye, y'all.